most cryptocurrencies that are out there right now are crypto pseudocurrencies. They're not real currencies. They're not real stores of value as packaged and used by the purveyors of them that will in any way aid economic growth or the actual growth and the prosperity of the real economy or the citizenry. Financial institutions on which we in the real economy depend didn't yet get into all of this crypto nonsense in a big way as they did in the lead up to 2008. And so the broader economy, I think, is a little bit better insulated this time against these crashes. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right. This is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Welcome, everyone. I appreciate you joining us. We've got a heck of a good show for you today with crypto collapsing all around. Something's going on, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. My guest today is none other than Cornell Law's own Bob Hockett. He is the advisor to many folks in Congress today, and hopefully Bob will be able to provide us with a really good insight to the collapse of FTX and others. Without further ado, Bob Hockett, welcome, sir. Hey, great to be with you again, Steve. Thanks so much. Absolutely. It's kind of funny because FTX five minutes ago was sponsoring the Super Bowl, and now they're circling the toilet bowl, proving once again the fair market value of crypto is zero <laughs> what in the world is going on right now within the crypto space well i think it's a classic case of a bubble that comes into being in connection with a new technology or a perceivedly new mode of finance that everybody lets their imaginations run wild on in view of the initial promise that's offered by the new thing for example if you consider the so-called junk bond market of the middle to later 1980s, at the beginning, essentially what the junk bond market was doing was enabling a kind of financing or a kind of investing that had previously not been possible. And that did, in a certain sense, add a certain kind of value insofar as it made something possible that hadn't been quite as easily possible before. The problem was that people got excited about that initial promise or that new increment of value that was promised by the new instrument and then got so excited about it that they started hyping it to other people and other people got caught up in the excitement of it. And in no time at all, the wealth that the new product represented was not really the product of new value added, but was instead the product of other people crowding into it and buying it and thereby bidding up the price of it. So it became a classic Ponzi structure without any need of any specific Ponzi 
You didn't need a Charles Ponzi to do it. You didn't need a Ponzi in the form of a person who was literally scheming. All you needed was a product, the market for which developed a structure that in effect replicated the structure that we associate with a Ponzi scheme or what's also known as a pyramid scheme. So Stephen gets into this particular product or this particular market at the front end. He invests a little bit in it. He buys it relatively inexpensively because it's new and so it's not big yet. He talks other people into getting involved in it and buying it too, partly on the basis of actual legitimate value added that the product represents. But he gets so many people to crowd in that they drive up the price and then a huge increment or the increment of that price that's attributable to people crowding into it ends up becoming larger than the increment of that price that's attributed to the actual value added by the product. And then in time, more and more people crowd in and basically at each stage of the crowding in process, more people are doing it. That's where you get that pyramid shape or pyramid structure. And more and more people are actually borrowing in order to buy. That is to say, they are crowding in, in effect, with borrowed funds, driving the price even higher and higher and higher. And then eventually what happens is that the credit available for people to borrow speculatively in order to buy speculatively within that new market runs dry. And at that point, everything collapses and all the people who borrowed in order to get in are now of negative net worth. They all basically have less than they began with because they owe more than they own precisely because the thing that they borrowed in order to own has now suddenly dropped in value. It's the classic Minsky style structure, which is effectively a pyramid structure or again, a Ponzi style structure. And we see it again and again and again with new fad products. A quick aside here that links up, you've probably noticed, certainly I've noticed, if you go to various social media sites and you're looking at a friend's post or you're looking at somebody's Instagram post or whatever, and you look at the comments underneath the friend's post, some of them are relevant and actually pertain to the post, but tons of them will say, I got into Bitcoin. Wouldn't you like to get into? If so, contact me at this particular address or this particular contact site. Has nothing to do with the post. There's a reason for that. The people who are doing that are people who have already bought in and they understood and understand that the continuing growth in the price of the thing that they're into depends on more people coming in and buying it. And anytime that becomes the principal driver of the price of the product, instead of, again, the actual value added and the actual long-term value additive potential of the product, in other words, the fundamental value or fundamental potential of the product, anytime that crowd in value comes to exceed that actual fundamental value add capacity value, that's when you know you're in that Minsky territory, you're in that bubble territory, you're in that basically pyramid territory. And that happened, as I mentioned before, with junk bonds. It also happened then with subprime mortgage loans and associated products about 10 to 15 years after that. And now it's, of course, happening in crypto. And the irony is that in every one of these cases, there is a clue in the name of the product in question that ought to warn you. If it's called a junk bond, there is a reason for that word junk being used. And if it's called a subprime mortgage loan or subprime mortgage-based product, there's a reason for that subprime term. Similarly with cryptocurrency or crypto assets, as I call them, which is one of the most ironical names ever conceived for this kind of product. But if the word crypto comes into it, then that's a pretty good tip off that there's something non-transparent about it, that there's something opaque and occluded and difficult to understand about it. And that's a pretty good hint that 
maybe one should proceed with caution if one is to proceed into this territory. Well, the FTX bomb that just went off had so many ripples. There's a great article on Reuters, breaks down all these different folks. It talks about FTX going bankrupt, then Binance failing, and BlockFi, and Three Arrows Capital going down. Singapore-based 3AC blew up with $10 billion in crypto in 2022, and then now they're bankrupt. <laughs> Voyager Digital going bankrupt, Celsius Network, on and on. And yet these are the same buffoons, excuse me, <laughs> same individuals that are talking about the collapse of fiat, the collapse of the nation's generative account. It's humorous. It's laughable. But in that space, these people have got to convince others, Yeah, invest in, and then the owners of these exchanges decide to buy islands in the Bahamas instead of back their investments the way that they should with this deregulated world, because after all, free markets, private currencies, private exchanges, all this libertarian nonsense that keeps creeping into the left. Mm -hmm. It's scary, but there's a little bit of justice in this collapse to some extent, because by selling the lie, they've exposed the lie in this collapse. What brought these collapses on the gentleman? I see him as kind of a young dude that blew up, had a big brain moment and mm. it's done. He fell apart. Yeah. What created this? Well, I think a couple of features that are worth singling out because these are features again, that you find in earlier cases of this same general phenomenon as well. So one is there always has to be some kind of a story, some kind of a narrative that essentially makes apparent sense, or it makes say provisional or preliminary sense of what is otherwise like difficult to understand or difficult to use as a guide to action event. So in, for example, the tech stock bubble that began to inflate in the middle to late 1990s, and then ultimately came a cropper early in the year of 2000, the story was, oh, we've got this new technology that's going to revolutionize our modes of production across the economy. It's going to be usable in all the different spheres, all the different industries, all the different sectors of the economy. It's going to add value in the form of increased or boosted productivity economy-wide. And so it's best to get it on the front end of this if you really want to benefit maximally from it. And so all sorts of people began crowding into tech stocks in the late 1990s, even stocks issued by firms that told an interesting sounding tech story, but hadn't actually shown any records yet of profits or hadn't proven any actual capacity to earn, actual capacity to exploit potential markets. But people thought, well, if I'm going to get it on the front end, I had to get in before they actually proved their capacities to revolutionize the economy and to add all sorts of value and thus to recoup all sorts of value for initial investors. After all, if I wait until they've proven themselves, I won't make as much money. Best to get in the front end. And to a certain extent, that's true. But the problem with it is that for every one of those prospects that is ultimately going to pan out, there are probably 10 or 100 or 1,000 counterpart prospects or neighboring prospects that aren't. So what people tend to forget is that the overwhelmingly greater part of the invested money during the fad phase of a new investment product 
ends up being lost. It's only a relatively small number of folk who actually benefit by it. I think the same thing then happened, of course, with the subprime mortgage-related products. When these were brand new, there were certain synergies and certain capacities to capitalize value that they captured that hadn't previously been capturable. Effectively, what they did is they recognized that some people who, according to the old actuarial models employed by lending institutions, would not tend to prosper or would not end up being able to pay off their loans, indeed might be able to pay off their loans. And furthermore, that if you could put together portfolios of lots of different loans like this, people who would have previously failed to qualify for loans according to the old actuarial models that were used to determine who to lend to, they enabled more actual profitable lending to be done. And in so doing, they actually enabled more people to be able to buy their own homes that had previously been able to do so. But as always happens, so much money crowded into this new technology, essentially mortgage lending technology, and so many rascals were invited to enter into the market, essentially to offer crap alongside the non-crap, that the crap ultimately came to outweigh and outsize the non-crap. And that's, of course, where you got the trouble. Now, the same thing I think has happened with crypto. The initial technology, the original technology on which all of these so-called crypto assets were based, the so-called blockchain technology, enables all sorts of peer-to-peer transacting that wasn't previously able to be done. And it also, of course, provides for the possibility of certain indelible transaction records and their replication across databases or across servers so that you didn't have to worry about losing data or being unable to verify data. And that is a genuine advance or that's a genuine value add that we can indeed as a society make something out of that makes for better financing and better distribution of funds and better payment systems. But as usual, the crowd of people who have essentially decided to try to capitalize on this and capture some of the gains that this legitimately, potentially helpful new technology offers, the number of such people who are actually scheming and scamming in this space comes fairly steadily to outpace the number of people who are actually adding value. And in each of these cases, though, what you do is you start with the legitimate value add story, and then you blow it up into something bigger than what it really is. And that's what enables people to think they're getting in on it. Now, if you then add to the value add story, something that's culturally resonant in addition to say financially or economically resonant, like, oh, the people who are doing this are cool. You're cooler if you're one of these people than if you're not one of these people. And as you know, you've probably encountered the buzzword or the buzz phrase, self-sovereignty that began to be disseminated or used widely to the point of making people like you and I throw up about five, <laughs> seven years ago, and it's still current now, or the idea of taking control of your own financial and economic destiny simply by buying something that you don't actually even understand, like a Bitcoin. That, of course, further accentuated the appeal. But the whole point was not simply to accentuate the appeal, but to accentuate the appeal in order to bring even more people in. And now we're right back to that pyramid structure. You always need more people coming in now than were in before if the people who came in before are actually to profit. Because again, at some point, the actual value base of 
profit potential comes to be exhausted. And then the value base is replaced by effectively the speculation base, the pyramid base, the incoming of new quote unquote investors who are simply driving up the price of the thing that the earlier comers have already purchased and already owned and hence realized the property. I have two books here. One of them belongs oh. to a gentleman named Robert Hockett, and it's called The Citizen's Ledger. And then I got another book by my good friend, Brett Scott, and Cloud Money. So these two books together, this is Central Bank Digital Currency, and then this one is about the payment systems. <laughs> I think it's important to note that what you're saying and what I think most people that are in the know in this space are saying is that while this is not the use you would have for it, these speculative tools that are used to pump and dump, basically, there mm -hmm. are underlying values to the underlying technology right. in terms of blockchain, et cetera. And you've written extensively about the central bank digital currency, mm -hmm. which I think is often completely misunderstood as it's another speculative thing that we can just buy. Would a digital CBDC have had any impact on the implosion of FTX? Or is there a different form of regulation that needs to occur to prevent the type of collapse and the type of irresponsible management that FTX performed? Mm -hmm. How do we rein that in? I think both of the things you mentioned are essential and both of them are mutually complementary. And the, the easiest way I think to demonstrate this or just illustrate the reason that I want to say this is by reference to the history of paper currency, for example, right? The digital space right now is in effect the 21st century version of the 19th century paper currency space. So consider paper currencies in the U.S. as they first came to be offered and used widely in the early mid 19th century. At that time, they did represent a value add. They represented a legitimate advance in a money system because what they did is they severed the link to exogenously given quantities of so-called precious metals. Exogenous, external to the system. Externally given, basically exogenously given in the sense of so-called precious metals that people could not themselves create ex nihilo that you were basically dependent on an antecedently given stock of that under the ground. And if you wanted to increase the gold supply or the silver supply, you had to go around digging up in various places and you had to enslave native populations and send them into silver mines as the Spanish did, of course, in South America and so forth, which frankly, let's face it, it's no way to run a money system. It's no way to have a currency system. And the U.S. in particular in the 19th century was basically constantly, perpetually short of adequate supplies of these so-called precious metals or precious metal coins. And so the only way to grow the money supply in a manner that could remain in sync with the growth of the real economy itself and thus avoid slowing down the economy through a shortage of money, which, as you know, is by definition something that's deflationary, was essentially to untether money from precious metals, to sever that link, and essentially to start issuing money according as it was needed. And using paper currencies was a way to do that. And so there was a legitimate value add that came in the form of paper currencies, which were issued by private sector banks, and hence they were called, of course, banknotes. Now, 
the move to that new form of currency was an advance on the one hand, but it also gave rise to a new vulnerability on the other hand. Because once people are willing to accept paper instead of gold coins that they can sink their teeth into to see if it's really gold or something made out of basically silver coins that they can check the purity of, once they're willing to accept paper instead, a new problem emerges, or at least two related potential problems emerge. One is that counterfeiting becomes a thing, a possibility, because criminals like you or I can essentially imitate paper currencies more readily than we can imitate gold currencies, unless we have a bunch of gold already, in which case we don't have to counterfeit. Or issuers, even bona fide issuers of paper currencies like banks, if they are poorly regulated by the states in which they are organized, which in the 19th century they always were, there were no federally licensed banks, there were only state licensed banks, then again, the banks themselves could issue currency that ends up being bad currency because the banks themselves are bad businesses that don't run well or that aren't reliable institutions to be good for the obligations that their currency issuances amount to. So what we had happened then in the 19th century in the U.S. by the mid to later 19th century was a proliferation of what were at the time called wildcat currencies issued by so-called wildcat banks. And basically there wasn't any particular currency that was issued by any public instrumentality. They were all privately issued. And so some of them were good, but only if they were issued by good private sector banks, well-operated or well-regulated or both private sector banks. And then lots of nasty, bad currencies, unreliable currencies were issued by poorly regulated banks or badly regulated banks or badly run banks. And it was hard to shift out what were the good ones or what were the bad ones. And indeed, you or I, if we were to walk into a general store to make a payment for something, we might have a lot of different banks, wildcat currencies in our pocket, and we might have to hand over a whole bunch of it. And then the merchant who was selling us the stuff at the general store would have to pull up a little schedule of discount rates that attach to Foreign exchange within the domestic economy. (laughs) Exactly. Foreign exchange within the domestic economy. And so the Pecos bill or the wild Bill Hickok bank notes are actually worth 20% of stated par, but the Puritan bank from Puritan, Massachusetts or whatever, that counts at 90% or a hundred percent of stated par. And then they'd have to add up all of these discounted values to come up with the total value that you had laid out on the counter. That's not a particularly efficiently running system. And by the time the Civil War broke out, it was just downright intolerable because the union, the federal government had to requisition things and had to pay for supplies and had to pay troops and so forth in order to send them down to put down the rebellion in the South. And if the federal government had to spend all this wildcat currencies and didn't have a currency of its own that was of reliable value to spend, it couldn't prosecute the war. So a series of enactments by Congress, all then signed by President Abraham Lincoln in 1862, 63, and 64, essentially revolutionized the paper currency system. And what they did is they established a whole system of federally chartered national banks to operate in parallel with the state banks, all of which issued the same note, the same bank note now, no matter where they were in the country, it was called the greenback. And of course, that's the source of our current paper dollar bill. It was green and it was the same everywhere. And so these enactments essentially gave us a single unified national currency. It did not have to be tied to gold or precious metals. And so the treasury department could actually, to some extent, modulate the quantity. It could issue more when more was needed and more could be absorbed by the productive sectors of the economy. 
and it could issue less when not so much was needed or when there was too much to be absorbed by the productive sectors of the economy. And at the same time that we did this, we also then began to prohibit the issuance of private sector banknotes. So we basically, on the one hand, phased out the inadequate and the problematic and dysfunctional private sector currencies. And at the same time, we offered a reliable, stable public sector alternative that was issued by banks that were very carefully regulated by a new regime of federal bank regulation. Now, my own view for what it's worth is essentially we're going through the same evolution in the crypto space right now. And we are in effect in the wildcat bank equivalent of the crypto sector right now. We've got private sector crypto issuers of varying reliability. And we've got a sector that's essentially unregulated at this point, although the SEC and the CFTC are two primary regulators who have the most plausible claims to being able to exercise jurisdiction over this space, are making moves to move in and try to regulate, but are having little difficulty sorting out who gets jurisdiction over what, which uncertainty, by the way, is itself a source of the allowance of the continued chaos in these particular markets. So what I've been arguing and what the book is doing is essentially providing for the equivalent of that very evolution, that very move forward in the way of, on the one hand, offering a public sector version of digital currency that is uniform across the country and that is able to retain value through time and across space, while at the same time then phasing out and regulating out the private sector crypto that is essentially trying to do what we can do much better if we do it publicly. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. So what I would say, coming back at you, as the libertarian strain, which is largely advancing these things, a lot of the stuff comes from a significantly right-wing perspective. Yeah. And one of their chief problems is they don't want the government to be the currency issuer. It's like solving a problem that they purposely went out of their way to solve differently. Right. How would you affect their confidence in the CBDC? I feel like when I read stuff about the CBDCs that I'm reading stuff about 5G wireless causing seven legs to come out of the back of your neck. Mm-hmm. Over the top wrong mindedness. It makes me think that an education is very necessary here. The entire crypto space survives by disinformation. Mm -hmm. They talk about 
They're printing so much money, they're debasing. How do you debase a free floating currency? They're debasing right. the currency. Yeah. Once they say that, you know, they're lying. But then the next part of that comes back to something you said a little bit earlier. You talked about the 90s and the initial foray into the dot-com bubble. And a lot of companies realizing revenue that hadn't even left their warehouse. And I think back to Cisco and some of their accounting practices in the yeah. early 2000s and MCI doing faulty accounting, taking leased lines and making them part of their internal assets, Enron. So what I keep seeing, and I want to make sure I'm seeing this correctly because I'm pulling from our friend Bill Black as I think through this, multiple chapters of the same novel. We build it up, we become too big to fail, and we have high-speed transactions, lots of bad people involved, a lot of ignorance, and lots of really cool mystique around it, and you end up with massive corruption. We saw the savings and loans crisis. We saw this in the housing crisis with Fannie and Freddie and Countrywide. By the way, those people are still doing their business. They didn't go away. Nobody got prosecuted. And so now we're dealing with a whole new wave of these folks. Yeah. What is going on to stop that corruption now, Bob? You're working on a CBDC. These things are going on to stabilize, but publicly, not privately. Mm -hmm. What other legislation is out there? What is some of the talk behind the scenes Mm -hmm. as to regulatory environments that may curtail more of these frauds cropping up and then stealing everyone's money. Sure. So I think, again, there are two things that will be done ultimately, because there are two things that always are done when we actually get a handle on these things after they've gotten out of hand and become dysfunctional to the point where they actually harm lots of innocent third parties and unsuspecting fraud victims and the like. So the two things I think that will happen and are already beginning to happen are in effect further developments of the general type that I just mentioned. So the first thing you do is as a public, as a country, as a polity, as a nation state, as a community, you recognize explicitly the legitimate value add that is offered by the new technology in question. So the technology of paper currency was a legitimate financial and monetary advance as a modality. Similarly, the issuance of stocks by firms and the issuance of bonds by firms, and then ultimately the issuance of derivative securities by various firms or derivatives underwriters were legitimate financial advances that enabled the financial system, at least in potential, to function more efficiently, to function much more effectively, and to channel credit to lots of places where it belonged, productive places, in other words, that previously hadn't had access. But as always, because there's a legitimate advance posed by these new technologies, there is the potential for fraudsters to come in and overhype the potential or to pretend to be themselves realizing the potential when they themselves really are not. And so the way you deal with this then is first, we as the public seize on the actual value add of the new technology and offer it publicly as something that is universally available to everybody on a nonprofit seeking basis. And then complementary to that offering of the safe version of this new technology, 
stamping out the unsafe or fraudulent versions, the pseudo versions, let's call them, because really most cryptocurrencies that are out there right now are crypto pseudo currencies. They're not real currencies. They're not real stores of value. They're not real technologies as packaged and used by the purveyors of them that will in any way aid economic growth or aid the actual growth and the prosperity of the real economy or the citizenry. So on the one hand, we establish and provide the public version. And then on the other hand, you stamp out all of the fraudulent and inadequate private versions. Now, what are we doing right now along those two lines? Well, for one thing, as you know, various regional Federal Reserve banks, the New York Fed, for example, the Boston Fed, the San Francisco Fed, are working on prototypes of a legitimate CBDC, a legitimate, in other words, digital dollar. And they're essentially doing so largely along the lines that are described in the book that I wrote recently that you raised up. And I promise this isn't meant to be a plug, but they're doing it along the lines described in that book by and large. And indeed, I'm working with several of these initiatives to try to make sure that the form that it ultimately takes, that the digital dollar ultimately takes, is in fact a legitimate publicly issued currency, essentially the digital equivalent of the paper dollar or the greenback. And indeed, for that reason, earlier versions of this proposal that I put out before the book, various articles and essays that I put out several years ago, actually starting about five or six years ago, are named things like the digital greenback because I'm trying explicitly to draw the analogy to the paper greenback. So that's on the positive side, on the public offering side or the public alternative side. We are at this point finally working on developing CBDCs in various regional Federal Reserve banks. And in so doing, we're following the lead of other countries that got there first. Sweden is probably the most advanced right now with the e-chrono being a purely publicly issued digital currency that is replacing almost entirely paper currency, not by law in the sense of outlawing paper currency, but just essentially people in Sweden seem to prefer to use their phones as a means of payment. And so they are using, or they're going to be making payments in e-chrono. On the other side, the regulatory side, as I mentioned before, both the SEC and the CFTC have tried to make moves in the way of regulating the digital currency markets in the way they regulate the securities markets and the derivatives markets, respectively. And I think the best thing that Congress could do right now is first to essentially answer the regulatory turf question. For as long as the SEC remains uncertain whether the CFTC is going to have ultimate jurisdiction, and for as long as the CFTC remains uncertain as to whether the SEC is going to have definitive regulatory jurisdiction, Neither of them is able to advance as far as we need them to advance in developing or crafting full-on cryptocurrency regulatory regimes. Now, of course, all of the scammers and scoundrels out there, the fraudsters who, of course, our friend Bill Black would describe as the control fraudsters, they're thrilled with that. They want there to be uncertainty as to who, as between the SEC and the CFTC will have jurisdiction to continue. Because for as long as that uncertainty continues, Nothing gets regulated and they can keep doing what Sam Bankman-Fried did and scam the hell out of everybody. So the first thing I think we ought to do or that Congress could do would be essentially to settle that boundary dispute, so to speak, between the SEC and the CFTC once and for all in the crypto space. And then secondly, 
charge whichever agency is given that jurisdiction with the task of crafting a full-on regulatory regime. That part's not really going to be that difficult because basically regulating this sphere is going ultimately to have to look a lot like what we do in regulating the securities sphere, in regulating the commodity sphere, in regulating the derivatives sphere, and even for that matter, the stocks and bonds spheres. Essentially, the pyramid structure is the problem in all of these distinct spheres, or at least originally is the problem before regulation in all of these spheres. The form that regulation will take in the currently under-regulated sphere is going to look a lot like the form that regulation now takes in all of these previously unregulated but now regulated spheres, which again includes securities, commodities, and derivatives. I got to ask, in terms of the institutionalized knowledge of the Fed yeah. and central banks in general, yeah. we see clearly that they have depoliticized things that really shouldn't be considered settled science. Like we raise interest rates to solve inflation. We lay people off to stave off inflation. We've cut federal spending to stave off inflation. These are all things that are killing the host yeah. so that they can somehow or another resuscitate it later. Right. These are ridiculous, but this is the Bible by which they operate from. I find it interesting to see archaic folks that are stuck in institutions like this. And the more I learn, and I recently spoke with Clara Matei, talked about the capital order. And she talks about the role of the trinity of austerity, which is interest rate hikes, the fiscal space reduction, eliminating public spending, and then the layoffs. Yeah. I find it intriguing to think about crypto, rightly or wrongly, it has been seen as a path out of this cage that we've been put in through the tools of austerity. And people mm -hmm. are finding a way around that and in their mind of freedom, mm -hmm. the desire for that is laudable. However, that's not how it worked out. And the Fed and all central banks have shown us that they're technocrats. In the end, they're going to do what the Bible tells them to do. And that's that. So how does a new technology like this get fitted into their institutionalized beyond the debate methods and procedures? Yeah, that's a really poignant question from my point of view, Stephen, because I wish there were a nice algorithmic answer that could be given to it or a nice, simple, straightforward solution to it. I think, however, that the solution is inherently multi-part. So, and some of the parts are parts that really are part of the answer to the problem in those other spheres too. And then other parts of the answer, I think, are to some extent, at least unique to the new technology or the new sphere being opened up. Sure. So to start with the former, the answers that are, I think, relevant in the other subsectors as well. It's helpful, I think, or it's at least somewhat helpful or potentially helpful. To have a central monetary authority that has some degree of insulation from the immediate political pressures. If you go back to about 10 or 11 years to the heyday of John Boehner and Eric Cantor, one of those, oh, yeah. those so-called young Turks who are now probably fairly grizzled Turks who were complacently claiming to be the leaders of U.S. economic policy in the House of Representatives. If those people had had control over the Fed or been able to make the Fed respond immediately to what they were demanding, which, as you'll remember, was much more austerity 
even than the disappointment known as Barack Obama was pushing on us, it would have been an even worse disaster. Things would have been much worse in 2011, 2012, even than they already were. Maybe that would have been a good thing because maybe it would have heightened the pressure on everybody to the degree where we had a revolution. But apart from that, apart from making things so painful that we actually finally had a helpful revolution, if they fell anywhere short of that, they would have made things much worse than they really were. And happily, Ben Bernanke, who is certainly not a hero by any means, neither a hero of the intellect nor a hero of statesmanship, was at least smart enough to know that these people were idiots and was at least insulated enough not to have to bow to them or kowtow to them or do what they wanted them to do. So on the one hand, that can be an advantage, a certain degree of insulation. On the other hand, obviously, I'm basically going Aristotle here on the golden mean. At the other extreme, there's the possibility of complete and utter unaccountability and in effect, a kind of autism, right? A complete shutting off from public understanding and public needs and also shutting off from alternative voices that are alternative to the orthodoxy that prevails in the American academy generally and the economics academy more specifically. So it seems to me the question is, is there some way to, on the one hand, insulate a monetary authority or other finance regulatory authority from immediate pressures of mob rule, or at least autocratic retrograde right-wing rule on the one hand, while still having a portal open to it where it can actually take seriously new perspectives or better perspectives and can actually learn from sorry experience on the other hand. Now, one way to do that might be, you mentioned before that I had worked at the New York Fed before, that which occasioned that's happening is itself, I think, kind of interesting, and it might itself provide a partial model or the germ of a model for what we can do going forward. So after the crash of 08, to its credit, one of the things that the New York Fed as an institution did was to ask itself, and by that I mean the people there began to ask themselves, what went wrong? How did we not see this coming? What did we leave out? What were we blind to? that enabled all of this shit to develop right under our noses and then explode so that we weren't aware of it until it was too late. And one of the things they decided when they did this internal self-study was that there was too much groupthink around not only the New York Fed, but in the Fed system generally, that basically if Alan Greenspan said something, everybody just accepted it around there and then they all repeated it. They mimicked it like minor birds or parrots. And nobody really was encouraged to think for themselves and nobody was encouraged to question any orthodoxy or any so-called consensus opinions, more like a kind of imposed opinion that had been imposed upon everybody as a party line. And so they thought maybe one way to guard against that would be to establish within our own midst a contrarian thinking department, in effect, in fact, what I call a kind of internal asshole department. They need somebody to be an asshole, essentially to say, are you sure about that? Why do you say that? Isn't that possibly wrong? Aren't you being ridiculous here? And thinking basically somebody to be an annoyance, somebody to kick at the possible flaws in any particular consensus view that had developed within the institution. And what they hired me to do, I guess they heard from somebody that I was an asshole, is they hired <laughs> me to help establish that internal contrarian thinking department. And to their credit, they did give me a lot of free reign. They didn't try to come down on me or shut me down when I suggested various things that ought to be being done that aren't being done or 
suggested that maybe we not say things or do things that everybody assumes that we should do. They were open to this for a brief period. This didn't last forever, but for a number of years, they were open to this and were actually even friendly to me about it. They would invite me to lunches, invite me to dinners. And the president of the New York Fed at the time, Bill Dudley, his administrative assistant would contact me before various speeches he was to give. And she would say, Mr. Dudley would like you to suggest some sort of out of the box things that he might consider or include in this forthcoming speech or in that forthcoming speech. And they were really friendly to it. And I think the height of this, the apotheosis of this came with that eminent domain plan that I developed for underwater mortgage loans. You might remember that from back in 2010, 2011, 2012. So I came up with this plan for how to essentially bust up or clear out the underwater mortgage problem and essentially to keep people in their homes and to write down their mortgage loans. And it involved the exercise of eminent domain, either by federal authority or by state authority or by local authority. And you might remember that brought a lot of controversy, to put it sort of politely, a lot of very vehement objection from Wall Street, all over Wall Street. So all sorts of banking institutions and right-wing politicians and so forth were attacking me by name for a while. This was my 15 minutes of fame, so to speak, where the Wall Street Journal attacked me by name two days in one week on its op-ed page. And in the midst of all of this, I get an email from the head of research over at the New York Fed, who was himself, by the way, a politically conservative-minded guy. And he said, hey, Bob, would you mind writing up a paper-style description of the plan and its justification for us, comma, the New York Fed, comma, to post on our website? Can you believe this? <laughs> Holy sh yes. I'd be happy to. <laughs> I developed all this on my own in my personal capacity, not in the Fed's capacity. Because, of course, without the Fed's permission to do this, I couldn't call it a Fed thing. Right. But once I had done it, the Fed says, hey, can you do this? Sure. And so I did it. And they put it up on the website. And they responded to criticisms. And of course, then they were duly attacked by the Wall Street Journal as right. having been taken over by communists or whatever. <laughs> so that kind of thing, I don't want to overplay the importance of that particular moment or that particular project sure. or even that particular office that they asked me to help start up. But what I do want to say is that that, it seems to me, is an example of the kind of thing that as a more general practice could be a helpful way of having it both ways in central banks or in monetary authorities, where you, in effect, institutionalize self-criticism. You institutionalize self-questioning as a means of inoculating yourself against a dangerous form of groupthink of the kind that had come to dominate the entire Federal Reserve System, thanks largely to Alan Greenspan and all of the crazy Democrats and Republicans alike who worshipped him for two decades in the lead up to 2008. Something along those lines I think would be helpful. And in that sense, you could almost think of a department like that or a function like that within an institution like the central bank as a counterpart to you or to the university or to the entire sphere of social critics within any pluralistic society that welcomes criticism. So you can think of the Steve Grumbines or you can think of the universities as a means by which a society reflects upon itself and criticizes itself and asks itself whether it might do a better job of what it's trying to do. 
And if you were actually to replicate that more macro institution or self-criticism capacity in a more micro way within specific public instrumentalities, that I think would be a very helpful step. And then you can have both the partial insulation and the accountability or the self-criticism. Very good. Bob, I want to get your closing thoughts on the crypto crisis. Do you foresee more of these things happening? Yeah, I think we will probably see more of the same across various so-called crypto exchanges. I don't think that more of the same is going to affect the wider economy in the way the financial crash of 2008 did, because happily there were enough people with enough common sense and there was enough regulatory structure left in place after the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 that you didn't see the same quantities of essentially borrowed funds being used to speculate in crypto as you did before. In other words, financial institutions on which we in the real economy, and in particular the middle and working classes depend, didn't yet get into all of this nonsense in a big way as they did in the lead up to 2008. And so the broader economy, I think, is a little bit better insulated this time against these crashes than it was last time in 2008, 2009. That being said, I think enough money is going to be lost and enough public attention is going to be drawn to these crashes that you will finally see Congress enacting meaningful legislation to, in effect, answer the jurisdictional question to begin with, the turf question, and then lay out a regulatory regime that looks a lot like bank regulation that will then be applied to this space on the other hand. And then as the CBDC finally comes online, as the dollar goes digital and comes to be administered by the Fed in the same way that the paper currency is, we'll basically have that problem solved. And then you and I can turn to the next crazy Ponzi nonsense that's going to come along because there will be a successor. Just as surely as subprime followed junk bonds and as surely as crypto followed subprime, some shit coin, shit this, shit that is going to come next too once we're done with this one. But we're not quite done with this one yet. I think we're on the way though. All right, Bob, thank you so much for joining me again. This is Steve Grumbine with my guest, Bob Hockett from Macro and Cheese saying, we are out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives. I want the truth!